Welcome back to Mosaic, the podcast from Education Development Center. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity around the world. I'm Burke Ronofsky, senior writer at EDC. It's been one full year since many schools around the world had to pivot to distance learning in order to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Over that time, educators have been using all sorts of technologies, including the internet, television, and radio, to try to keep their students learning and engaged. It has not been easy. However, the world's emergency transition to distance learning has also shown that effective learning does not have to occur in a face-to-face classroom. If anything, it has revealed the importance of rethinking education with distance learning technologies front and center, especially for young learners in low-resource communities. My guests today are two people with extensive experience using technology to support high-quality early education around the world. Amanda Devercelli is the global lead for early childhood development at the World Bank and is currently living in Kenya. Rachel Christina is the Director of International Basic Education at EDC, where she provides leadership, technical support, and quality assurance for EDC's International Basic and Pre-Primary Education programs. She is based in Washington, D.C. Amanda and Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a quick global assessment. We are recording this podcast in early March, which is fully one year after most schools around the world shifted to distance learning uh, because of COVID-19. So as you look around the world today, what do you see as the current state of education for young students? So as you said, we're a year on, I think at the at the height of the pandemic, about 1.5 billion children around the world were out of school. Um, now, Many countries have started the reopening process. Uh, we have about, I think, 25 countries worldwide that are schools fully open, and then another 100 or so that are open with some limitations, and then around 70 that are closed. Um, so this still means uh, about half of those 1.5 billion children who were out of school have continued to be out of school. And of course, we know that the school closure has disproportionately affected certain students and certain populations. So some some families and and some children have been able to transition fairly seamlessly to distance learning um, if they've had the right support and, and access at home and if the, the school system's been able to roll out um, strong policies. But we know in a lot of countries um, that that hasn't been the case due to a variety of different limitations. Um, and so, you know, this, this pandemic, of course, has not impacted all children equally. And Rachel, what's your perspective on this? As Amanda noted, we're at about 800 million students, which is about half the world's student population who are still facing significant disruptions to their education. UNESCO data indicate that most learners have missed at least a third of the school year. And even those who are returning to school are typically not getting a full instructional program when they go back. This is because the numbers of children who can be assembled are limited in many places because of health protocols. So it really amounts to a rationing of educational access, if you want to think of it that way. Learners are going to school only for a few days or a few hours a week, and they're not getting the full instructional program that they would ordinarily receive in a school year. Yeah, there you just talked about some of the changes that um, students and schools have had to make over this year. I mean, this past year has been such a traumatic one in terms of young children's access to school, you know, consistent school. What do you think the short and long-term impact of this pandemic is going to be on early education? Sure. When we think about the pre-primary population, even before you enter school, you're looking at a lot of families that have lost income. So already low enrollments in fee-based early childhood programming, which are the most common environments offered to children, those enrollments will be likely to drop. 
pre-primary program isn't free in most contexts, and this means an even smaller group of learners will likely have access to education before they start formal primary school. So this is going to have a cascading effect on primary education because it increases the instructional challenge in the early grades when children don't come to school prepared to succeed because they haven't had a pre-primary opportunity, they haven't been exposed to learning to learn, if you will. But on the other hand, I think that as education systems adjust to respond to the learning gap that's been created by COVID, they may take this opportunity to look at changes all along the ladder from preschool all the way up to secondary school and potentially be willing and interested in investing more in preparing learners for school and supporting families and communities to ensure that children are ready and able to learn. One of the things that we've seen with COVID closures is that family and community support has been really critical in keeping children learning while schools are closed. And thinking about how to ensure that those supports continue may open more doors to different kinds of early education, such as uh, home-based learning programs for the pre-primary learner. So long-term, I'm hoping that we'll see some more investment in the kinds of opportunities that are so well supported by distance education, things like community-based early education that really prepares children to succeed at low cost and at very large scale. And Amanda, what's, what's your take on the, the short and long-term impact of, of the pandemic on early ed? Sure. I, well, I like Rachel's optimism, and I hope it. I hope it's the case. You know, I think on the less optimistic side, we know that countries are going to face budget crunches uh, coming out of this pandemic, and so I think one of the worries I have is that we have seen so much progress in increasing access to early childhood education um, in the last decade or two around the world, and I think there is a risk of that progress stagnating. Um, if countries don't continue to invest in early childhood education or if they if they decrease investments. But I think, as Rachel said, there are a lot of bright sides. I think parent engagement is definitely one of them, that, that many parents have engaged with their children's learning in ways that they never would have pre-pandemic. They have a better understanding of what it takes to support young children's learning, simple things like reading with your child, playing with your child, singing with your child, taking opportunities to count things while you're out taking a walk. These are small things that parents can do with young children. And, and I think the, the pandemic has inspired more of those interactions. Another area that I think uh, will have a, a longer term impact on early education, education in general, is that unfortunately in many countries, we've seen an increase in adolescent pregnancy in this time. And unfortunately, that probably means that um, there will be more children born to parents who weren't planning to be parents and may not be ready, and they're going to need extra support to, to support their children's growth and development as they're born. And then I think the last longer term system impact, or maybe medium term, is that as Rachel was saying, some families may uh, delay their children's entry back to school. Uh, and I think that there's a real risk that there'll be sort of an over-enrollment bulge in the early grades of primary school in many countries, which already existed in a lot of countries around the world. But now you'll sort of have, have the catch-up phenomenon of kids who missed last year, maybe trying to get pushed in this year. And so in year one, you could end up with a, with a double enrollment bulge. Um, because you'll have kids who miss the preschool year and will now be trying to come into year one. And, and that's a real concern, both for children not being ready to learn at that level, um, but also just for the system being able to handle that many children. Right. Um, Rachel, so right there, Amanda identified a few different potential issues down the road, you know, an, an over-enrollment of, of young children in school, as well as, you know, more 
uh, more youth pregnancies. Which which of those issues sort of resonates with you as one of the challenges that you think we're really going to have to face down the road? Well, I think both of those are important. And I think um, Amanda also, in outlining them, pointed to some of the solutions. I think what COVID may ironically have contributed to is a, is a breaking down of the walls, as Amanda noted, between school and family, and an increase in the ability of families to see themselves as the early educators of children. In a lot of the contexts where we work, that has not been the case traditionally. There's been a sense that the school steps in, and that is an area of expertise that families really shouldn't be interfering with. And we've been doing a lot of work for a number of years uh, to try to build a better connection between schools and families and to increase the environment for learning and build a community of learning. And I think that the opportunities that have been provided to families to help them understand how simple things, as Amanda described, going for a walk, cooking together, going to the market, really may have helped to, to bridge that gap and break down those walls, and that we can build off of those lessons learned as we provide support to these young people who may not have expected or wanted to be parents yet and help them to prepare their children to be ready to learn as they move into schools. I think the learning bulge in uh, primary one and primary two is going to be a real problem. I think catching kids up who have lost nearly a year of instruction and are now in a mixed-age classroom, uh, even more than we typically see, is going to be a challenge. And so being able to differentiate instruction and respond to the needs of a very large group of children is going to be a real challenge for teachers who, who are not well-trained. And so some of the distance education methodologies that we've been both trying out during COVID and have a lot of experience with prior to COVID are going to be even more important as we support both learners and the adults who are working with them. You know, what we call distance learning really varies by context, um, but in many countries in Africa and South America, the past year of distance learning has meant education delivered over television or the radio. Um, I mean, even in some cases, ministries have been using social media and messaging apps to deliver content to parents to help them figure out how to support their, their children's education. Um, what are some of the innovative ways that you have seen these technologies deployed to promote student learning over this past year? Sure. Well, I think you touched on some of them. I think a number of countries rolled out sort of edutainment type approaches of, you know, television or radio programs um, that maybe hadn't been specifically designed, you know, had been designed with a learning purpose, but had designed been designed also with an education purpose. And I think that those filled a good were a good stopgap measure in a lot of countries when there wasn't time or resources to develop high quality content that was specifically aligned to curriculum. Um, I think that the that we've seen a lot of use of apps to try and reach parents with information or reach um, community health workers or teachers with information or, or give them tools to help reach out to their communities and, and track and record information. A lot of the home visiting programs that are that are very important in early childhood have adapted to try and try and support that kind of outreach remotely. I also think, you know, the um, that the use of technology is really important, but I also think just there are a number of countries that have also tried distribution of physical materials. And I think that that's been really important for families as well. And also the, the more tech-enabled solutions can be complemented with physical distribution of, of books and learning materials into homes as well. Yeah, I would agree that it's been an opportunity to try to mix methods, if you will, of reaching children and families at home. From EDC's point of view, we've seen a real resurgence of broadcast radio, 
uh, in the COVID context. And that remains the medium with the widest range and the broadest audience. EDC has supported radio broadcasts in Zambia, Mali, DRC, programs that have been focused on really helping parents to get students learning at home uh, using pre-existing materials that we already had. But we've also supported efforts in places like South Sudan and Liberia and, and Madagascar, where ministries had their own radio resources but wanted to make them more user-friendly and interactive. And then we've also supported the release of educational programs online in places like Honduras, where internet access is more widely available, as well as SMS-based pushes of content and educational tips to families in a range of countries. And I think there are both challenges and opportunities with all of these approaches. Radio time can be very costly, and coverage may not be consistent across a country. Relatively few people can access, download, uh, and use online resources just because internet access is so limited. But we found that a combination of delivery methods and messages can increase the extent to which families are able to both access materials uh, and use them, as well as improve the comfort level of children and the families that are supporting them at home. One thing that I think we've found has been a real support for this uh, and has been an additional opportunity for community members is that we've been able to engage young people who are out of school to mentor and monitor the users of distance education programs that we've been implementing. So engaging slightly older youth to support younger learners, to monitor distribution of resources, to help with feedback, um, troubleshooting, to assist with learner assessment, uh, and to provide physical and, and moral support for distance education initiatives. And that's been a really good way to help keep those youth who are also out of school engaged in their communities, develop some leadership skills, and stay connected with learning on their own. So it's been a nice benefit from the very young children up through older youth uh, and keeping them all engaged at the same time. So thinking about some of those, those benefits that you were just talking about, um, what advantages do some of these technologies offer over traditional classroom instruction? And I, I mean, I'm mindful that, you know, the whole world basically shifted towards distance learning out of necessity, but maybe there are some lessons that we can pull out of the past year to inform our education delivery going forward. There are a number of high quality evaluations uh, that show that interactive audio instruction can be highly effective, uh, deliver good quality programming and be very cost effective when delivered at scale. And we've known that for a long time. But I think that sometimes ministries of education have been hesitant to invest in interactive audio instruction and radio programming because it, it does have a hefty upfront cost. But what I think, what I think the pandemic has shown is that Boy, would it be great to have made that upfront cost and be ready to roll it out. And I, I remember a few years ago during the Ebola crisis, Rachel and I were talking, or actually I was listening, Rachel was talking on a panel, and she was talking about um, lessons learned. And one of the lessons was, it's actually not a great idea to try and develop new content quickly in a crisis, but that in places where you already have high quality content and a system developed, it can roll out seamlessly during a crisis. And I think that. We've seen that same lesson, not just for radio, but for everything right now. And so I think hopefully there, there may be more interest in developing these systems because I think everyone is recognizing that 
well, we wish it were so, this may not be the last pandemic. Also, many of the countries that we're working in the World Bank, many of the governments we're partnering with have all different sources of instability at any time, political instability, climate instability. Um, and so it's good to be ready with something that can be that can be rolled out through distance. So I think to, to get back to your question, there are a number of potential advantages. One is um, just being able to reach a, a high number of students wherever they are, as long as there's some radio coverage. I think it can also be uh, like a source of structured support, either for parents or for teachers. You know, I remember years ago, I visited the, the radio program in Zanzibar. And what I was really struck by is that it really was sort of scaffolding the lesson for a, you know, a teenage girl who was, you know, who hadn't, hadn't finished secondary school, but um, had had some basic training. But the, the way the the program was broadcast and structured, it really led her through how she could lead the class effectively. And so I think that that's, you know, that's another real advantage of this medium, if it's well-designed, high quality, and tailored to the local context and, and, and all of that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's the primary advantage of the kind of work that EDC has been doing. And it's and it's what any government that wants to build a distance learning component in should be considering is how do you support not only the learners themselves, but also the adults who are working with them. In most of these contexts, we have adults who are not highly trained or not trained at all, and they may really lack confidence about how to support children as they learn. So looking for a medium uh, in our case, it's interactive audio instruction that delivers both high quality curriculum and effectively coaches the adults at the same time is really important. Having that dual channel approach really can reduce the frustration and the worry that if you're talking about parents who have children home from school, they're facing. Um, if you're talking about relatively untrained young caregivers who are, are attempting to run a preschool program, it reduces their worry and their frustration. And if you're looking at an early primary classroom where you've got an enormous number of students uh, all challenging the teacher one way or another at the same time, it, it reduces the worry and the frustration that that teacher has about how to manage an effective instructional approach. And I think as we move back into classroom learning, early childhood providers who are supported with some sort of distance mechanism like interactive audio really will have a much stronger foundation for good, high-quality, research-based practice. And, and that should be the focus as governments continue to think about how to scaffold and support their education systems with some sort of distance methodology. So in the short term, it sounds like you are expecting ministries of education will continue to use these technologies to deliver education to young children, especially in low-resource communities. Yeah, I think so. I, I expect that we'll continue to see both interest in and a need for some kind of blended or, or distance learning as kids go back to school. You know, health protocols limit the number of children that can gather at one time. So if you have a distance learning methodology that you're also using, you can provide them with access to learning at times when they're not able to be physically present in the classroom. Uh, home learning can really support and supplement that in-class experience. And in early childhood, that can be a blend of parenting support over radio, community learning opportunities for young children that can be either face-to-face -face with, with traditional mixed media, or it can be technology supported. But I do think that both in the short term, we're going to see continued demand. And in the long term, as Amanda alluded to, if we can build more of these supports into systems and make them part of regular delivery of education, then you have a way to pivot in a crisis that you don't have at the current moment. 
Right. So my last question, it's, you know, it's becoming a trite statement to say that the past year has really changed everything, uh, but I think it has. And moving forward, what role do you think interactive audio instruction and other forms of distance learning should play in young students' education, even if we're not in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, uh, Amanda, you were talking about this a little bit earlier. What advice would you give to ministries about how they can better integrate radio, IAI, other distance learning technologies into early childhood education? I would say that it's an important thing to consider as an investment, uh, first of all, to reach young children at home, uh, because we know, you know, in low income countries right now, the enrollment rate in preschool is is less than 25 percent. So in low income countries worldwide, less than 25 percent of children are enrolled in preschool. And so for, for that reason alone, uh, options such as interactive audio instruction, they could reach children and their families at home are still really important to consider because we don't have enough children uh, who are who are going to be able to access preschool face-to-face even once things reopen up in every country. And, you know, I think they're also potentially very good sources of enrichment support and learning at home. I mean, I think every one of my generation has very fond memories of Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow and the the radio programs that you listened to um, when you were a child and and that those were learning learning opportunities so this kind of edutainment approach that can can give children enrichment opportunities and complement learning in more formal classroom settings is also important. It's also an opportunity to engage parents if it's well designed. You know, I can imagine play with your child broadcast hour hour or um, you know, mommy and me or daddy and me, um, where it's kind of a something that parents and kids can look forward to that that helps them go through some learning activities at home, broadcast into the home each week. Um, and then I think the other the other way countries should be thinking about it is as a support system for lower capacity staff or teachers who could use some some extra scaffolding support in the classroom uh, to lead them through lessons. And Rachel, let's end with you. What what advice do you have for ministries about how they can better integrate radio or interactive audio instruction into early childhood education going forward? Well, I think what we've seen with COVID is that education systems globally were not prepared to deal with major disruptions to learning, and they had no backup system for delivering education at scale on short notice. And as Amanda has said, it's possible to use distance education to provide a real buffer against system shocks and to build the resilience of a system, but it has to be done thoughtfully and it has to be ready ahead of time before that next crisis strikes. And so I think that the advantages of a methodology that is proven over 30 or more years to be highly effective in the classroom should be harnessed to address the learning loss uh, and the learning crisis that we're going to be seeing post-COVID, the catch-up that's going to need to happen is going to be enormous for for children at all grade levels, but particularly for pre-primary learners coming into classrooms, having a mechanism that supports low-capacity teachers, that delivers a high-quality curriculum uh, that is proven to be effective, will be really helpful to systems as they re-engage but also then having that ready and able to be accessed in the case of future shocks will be of great benefit to them. And unfortunately, I think we're not just talking about health issues. We are talking about climate crises. We're talking about national natural disasters. We're talking about a range of conflict and crisis contexts in which many of the most challenged children are living and having those systems buttressed with this kind of support to which educators could pivot and to which families could pivot in case of a crisis will be really important. 
Amanda Debricelli is the global lead for early childhood development at the World Bank, and Rachel Christina is the director of international basic education at EDC. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Mosaic. For more information about EDC's work to support interactive audio instruction around the world, visit us online at edc.org.